RadioInfluence.com. This is Crush Performance, your weekly source for sport performance and athletic development information with Jeff Crushell. Get in the action and text Crush at 10 12 60 with your questions, comments, or smart ass remarks. And welcome to Crush Performance, everybody. Jeff Crushell here, the con man, back in the studio putting us all together. Welcome as we come to you from our very first international recording on Crush Performance. We are live in Utrecht, Holland, here for the opening event for the baseball softball Olympic qualifiers as the road to Tokyo is underway. It was the European African Softball Championship here, the winner representing Africa and Europe in the upcoming Olympics. It was an incredible week, and that's what we're going to reflect on here today. It's going to be a great discussion. Anytime you can get around the world's top athletes, regardless of what sport it is, uh, what a humbling experience. Uh, the competition, the mood this week, certainly the level of performance was incredible, but the emotion, man, the emotion was something that was, was really, really interesting to me. We're going to talk about that the entire show. Today, we're going to talk about what does it take to become a top performer. It's a long game, to be sure. I want to get back to some of the principles of long-term development because if you have a dream of reaching your potential there's things you need to be thinking about and one thing we say to all of our athletes regardless of what level they're at um, don't let anybody say you can't because we don't know how far you can go until you go through the process our job here at Crush Performance is to try to help everybody understand what a great process looks like Regardless of where you're at, regardless of your resources, there's things you can do, I guarantee it, to help you tap into your potential. And if you know what to think about, well, man, we can maybe help you down that road. Wouldn't it be great? So we don't know how good you can become until you go through the process. But when we get a chance to watch the world's top performers do their thing, I always sit back and reflect, how did they get here? What, what is their story? And what experiences did they have along the way that allowed them to get here? So many factors involved. That'll be the discussion. Hey, listen, the Crush Summer Tour is book solid. And it is going to be a fantastic time coming up. Please follow us. Follow along here on the podcast. We're going to have a lot of international recordings this summer because we are book solid, frankly. We are in Vero Beach last month at Dodger Town. We're in Utrecht, Holland here this week. Uh, with the KP Sport Drink, the launch of the first ever sports-specific drink that we're so, so proud of, 15 years in the making. We'll have a lot more about that coming up here, but um, it's a tool that I wanted from my athletes. 15 years ago, uh, I had a question from my athletes um, challenging me to find better answers. And when I started going down that rabbit hole, boy, I discovered very, very quickly... Um, how much work needed to be done if we're going to give our athletes the tools on the nutrition side to tap in their potential. Because let's face it, here's the three big ringers when it comes to athlete performance. All right? we, our foundations of development are set in stone. You have to be a great, well-rounded athlete in order to maximize your playing potential. Something that we have incredibly backwards everywhere in the world. We always focus on the player first and it's the wrong way to go, people. Just trust me on this one. Or at least think about this concept. If you're not a well-rounded athlete, you can 
practice your skills. You could practice your game. You can compete till the cows come home, but you're going to be limited at some point by your athletic abilities. And if we can increase that potential while decreasing your risk of injury, well, you know what? You're going to have a really good chance of truly finding out how far you can go in whatever sport it is you're competing at. The athlete before the player. All right? So the athlete, and then you have to have that technical, tactical side, and then you have to have that competition side and really understand what it takes. And it's a process. I want to get into the long-term athlete development today. Again, follow us. Crushperformance.com is the website. If you have questions, comments, smart remarks, we love them all. If you have a topic you'd like us to investigate or a question that you want us to answer, uh, we answer every single message we get. And if you have a topic, you know, as much as we like to get you guys thinking, you guys get us thinking as well. We have dedicated recently in the past month two or three segments of our show to questions coming from our listeners. So we love it. And thank you guys for, for that insight and those thoughts. Um, because you guys are bringing us questions that, you know, everybody gets sort of caught in their bubble. And it's sometimes hard to see what's going on outside of your, your, your own little world. Uh, but when you guys challenge us with questions, you get us thinking about things that maybe we haven't thought about for a long time. Or maybe we haven't even talked about on the show. But we've dedicated segments, even entire episodes to your ideas. So reach out to us if you can. Uh, crushperformance.com. And join us for our summer tour. We'd love to have you guys follow us over this incredible summer and fall that's ahead of us uh, on our social media platforms. Instagram is going to be a hot one. Crush Performance, uh, Facebook, and our YouTube channel. Just search out Crush Performance there. And on Twitter, at Jeff Crush. Yeah, join us. It's going to be an incredible summer as the uh, Crush Performance Tour rolls along. Uh, today, again, being at the Olympic qualifiers here in Utrecht, Holland, the first qualifier for uh, baseball and softball as the road for 2020 the Olympic Games in Tokyo is underway for this particular sport and it was an incredible week as six teams from Europe and two teams from Africa faced off to get that precious precious Olympic berth we had the Netherlands of course the hometown Italy, France, Czech Republic and Great Britain along with Spain representing Europe and South Africa and Botswana representing Africa. And there were some very, very good games here. The talent pool uh, was incredible, but there were some lopsided games for sure. Some of these teams were overmatched and some of these teams were, were really, really talented. If we looked at the teams coming from South Africa, uh, Botswana was really interesting. Uh, they had a pretty good ranking in terms of their competitive schedule in this last world ranking um, uh, calendar. They were ranked 43rd overall. South Africa was 28th overall, and they played very well. A very, very young team. Talking to the African delegates, uh, they've gone with this sort of long-term approach. It's something that the South African Olympic Committee has adopted wholeheartedly. They've actually hired some of the Canadian sports scientists who are responsible for spearheading the long-term athlete development program to come over and help South Africa develop this model. And one of the things that we saw here at South Africa, they came into this qualifier not expecting to win, but to give their young, upcoming, next-generation athletes the experience they're going to need to steer that particular sport forward. It was a fantastic conversation. We talked to the president of the Softball Federation earlier, and most of these girls were under 23 years of age. Some of them will be competing in Irvine at the U19s. So this team from South Africa is going to be something to watch over the next eight years, two Olympic cycles, as they get set for the return 
of softball in Los Angeles in 2028. Um, Baseball and softball are back in for Tokyo. They are out for France, and they'll be back in for Los Angeles in 2028. And that's the schedule that some of these teams are working on. Now, when we looked at Great Britain, the Netherlands, Italy, France, Czech Republic, even Spain, fantastic competition. These are some of the best teams in the world right now as they battled it out. But one of the things that I really appreciated is not just the talent of these, of these ladies, but the emotion of the week competing for a spot at the Olympics. And out of these eight teams, only one team will move on. And just yesterday, Italy won the Super Round Final to represent Africa and Europe at the upcoming Olympics as the road to Tokyo is well, well underway now. But to see the celebration on the Italian side, but as teams over the last two to three days were slowly eliminated from contention, from the possibility of competing at the Olympics. It's a real humbling experience. These athletes have worked all of their lives to get to this point. The coaching staff and the organizations and the support structure of the federations. And to see the disappointment, of course, that is part of sport. Uh, But one of the toughest things I think I saw this week was uh, the consolation game between Czech Republic and the Netherlands, who were both eliminated two days ago, but yet had to play for the third place spot before the final game um, yesterday here at the qualifiers. Uh, They played their hearts out. And you could tell, however, that uh, the dream was done. And, you know, when we look at that side of sport, the emotional side of sport, there's nothing quite like it. It is a humbling, humbling experience. You work all your life and there's nothing more difficult than the Olympic qualifier rounds. Four years Every four years, you get a chance to represent your country. And it was really interesting to see the emotional side, uh, to be around it once again um, when it comes to being eliminated. This is part of sport that I think really rounds out the uh, human side of things. And it's also something that's very trainable. Talking to a few of the teams they felt they just didn't have the fire they needed. And this was an exceptional week for every one of these teams. We had historical high temperatures here in Holland. 40 plus degrees Celsius, 102, 105 degrees Fahrenheit. Very, very difficult conditions to play in. Uh, the hottest, highest recorded uh, temperatures in history here in Holland and you could see it take its toll over the course of the week on these players so again player management and recovery strategies were absolutely critical for this tournament because when we looked at the top four or five teams uh, any one of these teams could have won this tournament Uh, a lucky ball a lucky hit uh, you know untimely error can turn the fate of an entire organization I guess that's one of the things we love about this level of sport But as I watched the week roll on and we got a chance to talk to some of the administrators, coaches, sports scientists, and especially the athletes themselves, it just got me wondering, you know, we sit back with our athletes and we wonder, okay, how can we help them get there? But when you see top performers perform, at least for me personally, I can't stop but thinking, how did they get there? And I like to try to break down and reverse engineer all of these stories to see if there's something that we can learn in there that can help other people achieve their goals and their dreams of maybe one day reaching their potential. And again, let's just be perfectly clear in crush performance world. We always say we really don't know 
how far you can go until you go through a really good process. In that environment, the support of the federations, the people around you, the coaching staff, your teammates, it's very, very different when we get into that team atmosphere as opposed to addressing a singular athlete. When we look at our athletes independently, there are a lot more controllables. We look at where they live, what they eat. We look at their family and support structure. And then we look at their schedule and we try to build the best development plan possible, whether it's short-term or long-term. Now, when that athlete gets into the world of team sports or out into the world of, of competition, there's so many variables involved. Now, whether it's an individual sport like tennis or golf or a team sport like baseball, soccer, football, hockey, Uh, There are variables there that you have to consider as well. And they're very, very different. But even the individual athletes will have a team around them, whether it's their support staff, their sport performance staff, their coaching staff, the federation and administrators at the highest level. That's a big team. When we get to the team sports, however, we've got to provide the coaches with athletes that actually fit into the plan and complement each other. And that's one of the fascinating things about watching these high end team performance uh, competitions is because Everybody is so important. And if you can put together a team of really capable players, position by position, man, you've got a shot at being a world champion. And it's a long game. And I wanted to get back to the whole concept of the long-term athlete development models, which Canada, of course, is famous for. But it is spread globally now because why? It's just smart. And it's the right way to go. Unfortunately, we're still making critical, critical errors. So when I watch these athletes compete this week, some of the best in the world, these young ladies and women who are competing to get their countries to the Olympics, uh, I can't help but wonder what processes did they go through? What was their timelines and what were their experiences growing up? Obviously, tons of support around them. Obviously, that internal grit and determination to, to, to chase down their dreams. But make no mistake, whether we're watching our professional heroes, sporting heroes on TV or seeing them live on the Olympic international stage. These people are special. I'm not saying they're all good people. (laughs) We've seen in the news, of course, but they're special people. And in my experiences, I can just say for me personally, the vast, vast, vast majority and virtually every athlete I've ever met at the highest level, they're, they're great people. They're great people in an in incredibly exceptional position that they've created for themselves. But when we look at what makes these people tick, um, they're special for a number of reasons. And one of them is their commitment to do the same thing day after day or chase down the dream relentlessly day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And speaking from personal experience myself, I just never had the mentality to, to do it. And it's one of the reasons I think I respect all of these top performers so much. Because when I was a kid, I couldn't wait. I loved, couldn't wait for baseball season to start. But by the time it got to the end, man, I couldn't wait for it to end so we could start playing football in the fall. And then football season would come. We were fired up. When football season, I couldn't wait for hockey or volleyball or basketball to start. And so I'm one of those athletes that got really good at a lot of things, but I never, ever had the mentality to get great at one particular thing, if that makes sense. And that's one of the things that makes the top performers we see every single day incredibly special. Now, whether you have that grit or determination or not, 
um, doesn't change the fact that you still need to go through a process of development. And when we look at the long-term athlete development programs, I just want to talk here about some of the fundamentals that we need to think about. If you're an athlete looking to chase down a dream and maybe wear your country's flag or get that college scholarship or even that pro contract, there's things you need to think about. And it's never too late. We've seen athletes not start a sport till their late teens and become not just great players or good players, but impact players at the highest level. We've also seen, of course, we know the stories of the young Tiger Wood phenomenons in tennis, Andre Agassi, and, you know, different sports where they've started young, stuck to one sport their entire lives, and managed somehow to dominate and become the best in the world. There's no one single path for all, uh, but we do know that... There are some principles that can increase your odds. Let's talk about it. When we look at our model, the crush performance model of athlete development, it's always long-term. It doesn't matter whether we start working with a 10-year veteran of professional sports, an Olympic uh, champion, or somebody who's just starting their dedicated high-performance career path. We always address the athlete before the player. We clearly, accurately define where the athlete is at their, in their sport at this particular point in time. And then we build a plan long-term that's going to help them reach their ceiling. One of the big problems that we experience in sport is the fact that we're all trying to be our best right now. And sometimes that's not realistic. Sometimes we have to take a step back and sometimes we have to take a big, big step back in order to truly reach our potential. And that's hard to see by yourself. You need some really, really good people around you to make those decisions. And I think one of the greatest examples that comes to memory for me, and uh, you guys might have some other ones, let us know. Again, write to us, crushperformance.com. You can follow us on Twitter. But this would be a great one for you guys. What was one of the big adjustments you made along the way that really turned your career path around? You know, there's two really good stories that I can remember. And one of them is Tiger Woods, top of the world, dominating. You know, he is walking on water at this point in the world of golf. And yet he decides to take a step back and adjust his grip so he can somehow hopefully improve his game and his domination in the world of golf. Well, he took a step back. And if you remember this, this was this was um, uh, well into his career. He got a new uh, swing coach and they changed his grip. And his, if you remember, his game went to the toilet. He, he, he was terrible for a little bit, but you know what? He rose and rose and went on to dominate and crush even his previous performance. Somewhere, either he realized that his potential to play golf was limited because of his grip. He goes back, the best golfer in the world goes and changes his grip so he can be even better. I love that story, and it's a true story. The other one is the late, great Roy Halladay. Um, I was the minor league strength coach for the Blue Jays when Roy Halladay was just making his debut into the big leagues, and uh, he was dominant. His his call, uh, September call-up, his first few appearances in Major League Baseball, he absolutely dominated. Everybody knew he was special coming up. Uh, when you talk to the scouts that signed him originally, though, he was a good high school player. But they never, ever expected Roy Halladay to become the Roy Halladay that he did. And, you know, being there for this incredible story was really eye-opening. And it was humbling, of course, to be part of it. But so much fun to create champions like this, to be part of it. But when Roy Halladay signed his big league contract, broke the team, uh, broke spring training with the big league team, and then he struggled. He struggled for the better part of a year. 
And next spring training, he struggled. At the start of that second season, uh, they sent him back down to the minor leagues. Um, not as a punishment, to try to work things out. Because everybody saw something special in Roy. And uh, there was no questioning his dedication and his work ethic. That just was not ever in question. But they knew something was missing. He went back to uh, the long season A team in Dunedin, the spring training grounds. And Mel Queen, who was the pitching coach through the Blue Jays' glory days and the World Series runs through the early 90s was there. And Mel Queen worked with Doc along with a bunch of other people trying to make some minor adjustments that might help him reach his potential. And did it work? Well, it really, really worked. They sent Roy Halladay down to make some adjustments. Big step back. And uh, then he went on to be one of the greatest pitchers the game has ever seen. And so sometimes you need people around you to point these out. And sometimes it's called tough love. But sometimes you really got to take a serious look. But if you can't maximize your athletic ability, I'm sorry, you cannot maximize your playing ability if you don't have a really, really robust athletic base to build on. So we always say build the athlete first and then the player. Every single coach out there listening to this podcast, listen to me carefully. You're limited as to how far you can coach your athletes by their athletic abilities. You can swing a bat, kick a ball, you can run drills, skate, ride, do whatever it is till the cows come home. You can compete and compete and compete till the cows come home. But at some point, there will be an athletic trait or or ability that's going to limit an athlete moving forward. And that is the dance of athlete performance. And it's a long-term game. One of the biggest mistakes we see, by the way, in in sport is the comp- competitive schedules. And I, I joke around at the events I speak at all the time. And I say, boy, you know what? If I were the king of sport... Uh, and I might be running a campaign here. I hope I can get your vote. <laughs> but if if we were able to sit back and really just analyze sport, uh, the competitive schedules, you guys, and I, I wonder if you all agree with me, the competitive schedules are just so wrong. Uh, until we get up to like the collegiate, professional, international levels, in the developmental levels from 16 down, our competitive schedules are just so wrong. They're so heavy loaded. And when we look at the ratios that we like to see in terms of competition and training, we've kind of broken them down by age group. And this comes, again, from some of the brilliant thinking behind the long-term athlete development program that was designed by Sport Canada. But it just makes so much sense. When you have athletes 9 to 12 years old, as an example, we'd like to see 70% training, 30% competition. This is over a calendar year. So think of your sport right now. If you're an athlete or a coach or a parent of an athlete age 9 to 12 years of of age, I want you to go back and think, how many games did you play? How much did you practice and train? Well, the magic number here, just based on human development, should be around 70% training, learning skills, learning the technical, tactical side. If you're in a team sport, learning how to play as a team. 30% competition. Competition does not matter when you're 9 and 12 years old. Don't get me wrong. It's fun. I love it. The kids love it. But um, if we're really, really going to do a service to our young athletes and help them chase down the dream, we better make sure that we have our, our, our eggs in a row. Because we overcompete. We vastly overcompete. 9 to 12 years of age, by the way, is the most important age group 
in our sporting systems in every single sport. This is where skill acquisition starts to happen. We've built the base, you know, through those first nine years of just hopefully fundamental movement skills. Hopefully up to the age of nine to 12, they've been playing multiple sports. Maybe they've been in a tumbling or gymnastics program. Maybe they ran some track, but hopefully they've tried a whole bunch of sports because that's where young people, young human beings start to self-select based on their physiology, their biology, and also their mindset. Don't forget about this, all right? So if you look right now, let's take a sport. Let's take your favorite sport, whether it's basketball or hockey or even baseball, or maybe it's an endurance sport like rowing or cycling. The Tour de France is on right now. These guys, I mean, what? It's incredible feats of human ability every single stage of that race and uh, we know that the cycling world has really really done a good job to sort of level the playing field and attack the cheaters and and they're doing a great job I love watching the Tour de France again for the first time in many 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 years I'm really enjoying watching these incredible athletes compete but look how different a cyclist is from somebody here over in Utrecht like a softball baseball player two totally different athletes now could a cyclist become a great ball player Probably, but I'm going to say that from a physical standpoint, they've gravitated towards those endurance sports because physically, that's somewhere they can be successful. Think about school, for example. We have the kids who, for some reason, are just really good at math. Are they wired differently? Do their, do their, does their neural circuitry work differently? We don't know. Is it because of experiences they've had when they were kids? We don't know that whole story yet. We got kind of a picture, but we don't truly understand it. But why is it some good kids are really, really good in math and others are good at maybe the shop classes or the cooking classes or maybe something like social studies or phys ed as an example? Part of its mentality, Right and their personalities. And we know that a kid who's good at math and maybe not so good at maybe the the craftiness of hands-on stuff, a kid that just, they'll gravitate towards that area. Maybe they'll become one of the next great mathematician. And then we have another uh, kid the same age who really doesn't, you know, care about math or not really good at math, but maybe they're great at at maybe some of the the shop classes, the crafts, the the, uh, welding, the woodwork. Maybe they come become the next great uh, um, architect. Do you know what I mean? We gravitate towards where w- things we're good at. That's the name of the game here. And based on our backgrounds, certainly our home lives, one of the biggest influencers in our lives will be our home lives, the environment we grow up in. But we gravitate towards things we get good at. And a lot of that in sport has to do with our biology, our genetics, our parents. Could a endurance athlete become a great power athlete? Well, it's probably pretty rare. Could a power athlete become a great endurance athlete? I don't think you're going to see too many Olympic powerlifters become great endurance runners. Do you get my drift? So over the course of our lifetimes, we start gravitating. We start self-selecting to sports that we like, not just from a physical standpoint. Everybody wants to be successful. And that's, again, why it's so important to have diversity and this sampling period of many, many sports for young athletes through those first 9 to 12 years. Specializing for me before the age of 12 is a risky, risky business. It is an incredible crapshoot. But now, if you had an athlete who's experienced a ton of different sports, they gravitate towards one, not only are they that they're physically good at, but also their mentality lends them to that. It's a thinking game. It's a reaction game. It's a team game. It's an individual game. I work with some of the world's best squash players. 
And here's another great story. And I was asking one of these uh, players, and he, he climbed the ranks. as a jun- He was a, a world-ranked junior national um, uh, squash player. He was number one in his country when I started working with him. And he was going to join the, the men's side and try to climb his way up the world rankings. And he was at 116 or something in the world rankings when he started. I worked his way up to 64. At 64, we made some big adjustments, and he worked his way up into the top 20, and he really, really climbed his way. And I remember one time we were sitting there after a training session, and we're just talking about his sporting history. And he loved the team sports, played hockey with his buddies growing up, played baseball. And I said, so why, hey, what, what drew you to the game of squash? Well, his family, of course, had access to um, a facility where squash was played. His dad loved to play. So he got early exposure to the game. But this is what he said. And uh, this was a, a really interesting moment for me as a young pro as well. He said, I just didn't like having my fate in the hands of other people. He says, I wanted to control everything that happens. He says, I still like playing the team sports. He said, but for me personally, I want to be in control of what happens. So the individual sports, you know, turn up for me. He says, I, I, I like golf. He says, I'm pretty good at golf. Maybe I could have gone that way. But there's something about the speed and the competitive nature of squash. And why squash is not an Olympic sport, by the way, is one of the greatest mysteries uh, in the sporting universe. There is a, a no more demanding sport than squash, in my opinion, uh, from, from a physical standpoint, neurological standpoint. It has everything. I love the game personally, but the fact that it's not an Olympic sport, I get it. It's not very spectator you know, friendly, but oh my goodness, when it comes to actual sport demands, there's very, very few sports that match the game of squash. But what an interesting perspective as to why an athlete would, who could probably be successful, power speed athlete, he could have been successful in any one of those speed power sports, baseball, tennis, certainly maybe even even uh, sports like, um, or maybe even hockey, because that's a game that he, he played growing up. But he decided to go to the individual route. Again, mentality, right? So when it comes to training versus competition, back to this, uh, it's really, really important that one, the sampling period, we've got a bunch of great shows coming up when it comes to specialization here over the course of the summer. But if we look at the training versus competition ratios for nine to 12 year olds, we're looking at somewhere of 70% training, 30% competition. Now, when we look at our 19 plus year olds where you know we're looking at collegiate, national, professional opportunities, 25% training, 75% competition in specific training. You can see those numbers are almost exactly reversed. So as an athlete grows through the process, we have to make sure they have the fundamental skills that are going to allow them to succeed. Again, another great story that popped into my mind right now is the story of the, the Williams sisters, maybe two of the most dominant female athletes in any sport in history. But the story goes, and I hope this is correct, and if anybody can uh, uh, shine some light on this one for sure, but I remember watching an interview and um, when the girls were 15, 16 years of age, there was great pressure from the professional tour to have these girls competing. And Mr. Williams uh, didn't want anything to do with it. He didn't feel the girls had the skill set to be successful in the professional tour. So he held them back, I believe, till they were 18. And at 18, when they thought everything was ready to go, they unleashed those girls onto the world and look what's happened brilliant absolutely brilliant and again this is where you have to have good people around you and then we look at what happened with the unfortunate story for me of Michelle Wee 
where they pushed that young girl into the LPGA at such an early age. And then she wanted to compete with the men at such an early age. I really don't believe that that young, incredible talent ever truly realized her potential because of some very, very poor choices that were made. Now, whether they were hers or not, um, somebody needed to be there to say, hey, hold on. If you're going to be the best in the world, uh, we, we might want to rethink this strategy of getting into the upper levels early. And that's why sometimes playing up is not always a good idea. Sometimes it is, but it's okay to play at a level where you dominate. It's okay to learn how to dominate. If you're really that good at your age group, now there's a time to move up and be challenged again, but it's okay to really hone your skills and understand what it's like to be a top, top performer in your game. And this training versus competition, this long-term schedule is a big, big part of it. So keep that in mind. If you're a young athlete or a parent or administrator, um, this is a very important thing. And that that timeline matches up very, very closely with the chronological development of our young athletes or even our pro athletes. If we look at how a person develops over time, there are very, very distinct, distinct windows of opportunity when it comes to physical development. And here's the crazy thing about this. Over the course of a developmental pathway, if we don't get the right exposure at the right time, or if we get the wrong exposure at the wrong time, it can be devastating to an athlete's ceiling of potential. For example, if we start heavy strength training before an athlete goes through their peak height velocity curve, before that really, really big growth, we can actually be setting that athlete back in ways they can never, ever regain in the future. If we start heavy weight training before they've gone through that really big growth curve, we could be wiring that nervous system, developing that muscle in ways that doesn't match what that body's going to look like after peak height velocity. So we do body weight strengthening prior to that growth curve. We look at suppleness and skill development. Windows of speed development are there in the early developmental ages. But when it comes to stamina, the second speed window and true, true strength training, that stuff really, really can't happen until after that growth, that growth spike, that, that peak height velocity curve has, has happened. And then, and then you can really start pushing the ceiling of of athlete potential. If we start doing some of this too soon, we lower that long-term ceiling and that's a mistake we see happening all the time, all the time. Now, strength training, remember this, strength training is one of the most dangerous areas of athlete development because it literally changes the body and most times in ways that are irreversible. So it has to be planned. It has to be done right. And you need to get with somebody who knows what they're doing. Look for somebody with a sports science background. Look for somebody with a National Strength and Conditioning Association CSCS certification. CSCS stands for Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist. That's at a minimum. But also make sure they have that sports science degree background if they've gone to school. Because you have a good idea then that they understand the process of long-term athlete development. They're going to understand all the variables that are involved in developing athletes. And our foundation of development, the players at the top, everything we do is to enhance player development. But long-term player development, if we get a 15-year-old into our programs right now, I'm immediately thinking, depending on the sport, but I'm immediately thinking, okay, what can this athlete look like when they're in their mid-20s? Because what we do at 15 is going to totally impact their destination when they're 
at 20, 22, 23, up to 25 years of age. It's incredibly important that we think long-term. So when we look at the player, of course, we got the technical, tactical, competitive things. We know about talent development. We know about skill acquisition. There's nothing we can't train there given the right environment. But when it comes to developing the athlete, listen to all these areas we have to consider. You have to consider flexibility, range of motion, all the various areas of cardiovascular performance, aerobic, anaerobic, panaerobic power, cardiovascular power, strength, all the different areas of strength muscle hypertrophy, muscle size, muscular strength, muscular endurance, muscular balance, agility, movement, our number one priority. You guys know if you listen to the show, our top four priorities, this is where it all comes in. Speed, power, visual training, rest and recovery, nutrition, hydration, the psychological side, posture, injury rehab, all components of athlete development. If you're going to maximize yourself as a, as a, as a player, you have to maximize yourself as an athlete first. Bottom line, period. And so getting back to these Olympic Games, Italy has gone through. They have won the berth to represent Europe and Africa here at the first qualifying event. The next one is the America softball for baseball and softball. The next uh, qualifying event is in Surrey, BC coming up later this month. We will be there and we'll bring you information from that as well. Um, but that will be the Americas battling for uh, the spots to go to the Olympics And then um, the first baseball qualifier happens in Italy later this summer in Parma and Bologna. We will be there as well. And then, of course, for us personally, the big one's going to be the America's Baseball Qualifier in February and March in Arizona and Florida. It's going to be a fantastic summer as the Crush Performance Tour moves along. We've also got performance um, programming going on in Brazil, Curacao, Puerto Rico, tons of stuff going on in Canada. And of course, we're going to be there on the radio show. Um, follow us. Join us this summer, everybody. We're going to have conversations like this based on your questions, but based on people we talk to, based on our personal experiences, being around all these great athletes and uh, in the Olympic pipeline as the road to, the road to Tokyo is well underway. Um, but get to us. Follow us on Twitter, at Jeff Crush. On Instagram, we're going to be very, very active. I've actually uh, been pushed by our marketing people to be a little more present on Instagram. So I'm uh, getting into that. And, you know, I'm actually enjoying it. I'm not saying I'm good at it, <laughs> but I'm enjoying it. It's a great way to share ideas. And uh, the feedback has been great. So Instagram, uh, Facebook, and YouTube, Crush Performance. Um, we're going to cut out from uh, Utrecht, Holland. We're uh, hitting the road tomorrow. And uh, next week, we're going to be talking a little bit about nutrition and the hydration side of sport performance. And we're going to get into rest and recovery as well because it's so, so critical, especially at this level. And again, our number one priority, sleep, rest, and recovery for all of our athletes. So that'll do it for this week, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to talking to you next week right here on Crush Performance. Remember, we're here to help you think like an athlete. Goodbye now. Don't forget to ride. This is a Sitting Ringside with David Penzer Quick Fix on Radio Influence. This week on Sitting Ringside brought to you by Manscaped.com. Please welcome Vampiro. It actually started in uh, Halloween Havoc in Las Vegas. Um, And I think it was 1999 or 2000. I don't remember. But I suffered uh, a a very bad injury in a a match. And uh, I, I wasn't diagnosed until about a month after with a major concussion. But I just kept getting hit in the head and... Uh, taking headshots and crazy bumps and all those kind of things, and it just kind of accumulated. And then about three years ago, I just I couldn't understand the, the depression. I couldn't understand the memory loss. I couldn't understand uh, why I couldn't communicate anymore. I couldn't understand why 
I was having a hard time being in public. I was starting to be uh, very unaccessible to the fans. And, and, and I, I just, it just started building and building. And then uh, I had a stroke in November last year. And I, I got checked out and, and that was stress related. And then I just started doing tests and I went to a neurologist and we did a brain scan. And uh, he was, the doctor was like, why are you shaking? And I said, uh, I don't know. And then and, and we did all these tests and it came out that I'm in the first stages of Parkinson's and the first stages of Alzheimer's. And uh, the doctor said, if I didn't come here to the U.S., which I moved to Las Vegas to start treatment to kind of slow the, because you can't really cure it just yet. But he said, you're right at the right point to start treatment. And if you start this now, it's going to drastically reduce the onset of these things. I have my ups and downs. It's, it's, it's very, very difficult because, you know, you betray this superhuman guy or, you know, you're around superhumans and, and we're not. And unfortunately with wrestling, it's like having an upside down pyramid and uh, we become these, these big guys. But then at the end of the day, as time goes on, we fall apart. And um, if I didn't do this, I think I would have been dead by now. That's what they told me. Sitting ringside with David Penzer can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts and RadioInfluence.com.